Hello there everyone and thank you for tuning in to the M2.0 series of Ampule, the Australian Medical Students Association's podcast. My name is Angela Frenzy and I will be your host for today's episode. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians on the land on which we reside here, in what is now known as Australia, the place of recording. I extend my respects to the elders of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, past, present and emerging. AMSA acknowledges that the sovereignty of this land has never been ceded, and this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Our special guest today is Amy Nielsen. Amy is an Australian-trained rural generalist specialised in emergency medicine and a fellow of the Australian College of Tropical Medicine, who works in disaster and humanitarian medicine. She is passionate about optimising the delivery of healthcare, even in the most complex of populations. Today, she was generous enough to join us in this interview to share her thoughts and experiences. We were able to chat about important global healthcare issues, including experiencing structural violence placed against vulnerable people, providing aid in many different countries and cultures, and the importance of working together with local doctors and healthcare practitioners to create a sense of comradeship. I found the conversation incredibly insightful and fascinating to hear about this challenging but rewarding career and I hope you will gain some new perspectives from it too. So without further ado, let's hear from Amy Nielsen. I'm only human, can you see? I made, I made a mistake. Please just look me in my face. Tell me everything's okay. Cause I got it. Ooh, never be like you. And welcome to our podcast. We are really glad we could have you here today. And to start off, could we just get you to introduce yourself? Sure. So my name's Amy. I'm an Australian-trained rural generalist who works in emergency medicine. I studied medicine many years back at, at UQ and then worked a lot um, in rural and remote areas, did a, a fellowship of Akram and also a fellowship of College of, of Tropical Medicine. These days, I work a lot in, in disaster and humanitarian medicine. So was invited to, to speak here with you guys today via MSF, which uh, is a big part of my life at, at present. Yeah. Thank you so much to all the guys at MSF for getting us in contact and so we could have this conversation. And we'll get more to talking about MSF later. But I was wondering, did you always want to be a doctor? No. <laughs> I um, I find these questions really hard to answer, actually, because I think there are so many things that factor into the journey of, of where you end up and how. And I'm I'm probably quite prone to long and meandering routes to various destinations. So I I was certainly not the school student who knew what they were doing and went straight into medicine and stayed with all kinds of direction. Did many other things. Well, it is a very long journey, and it's good that. We were able to get into it because you enjoyed it and you kind of fell into it in the end. So something we like to ask is if your current career wasn't available, what do you think you would be doing instead? Oh, I would have been a journalist. Oh, I get asked this a bit, actually. It's a question that comes up from time to time. And that's so I, I really enjoy writing. And I work predominantly with MSF. I work predominantly in conflict zones. And I think i probably would have been a journalist in the same settings. Yeah. So was there any event in your life that inspired you to work in disaster medicine and disaster zones? I, I think there are so many steps to getting to that point that it's, again, very hard to identify one thing. My interest even in getting into medicine was always in, I guess, the, the most vulnerable of the of the vulnerable and how people are, are really disadvantaged by systems. So then when you take systems that are already conferring enormous disadvantage and you disrupt them with conflict, that becomes one of probably one of the most edgiest vulnerable examples. When I was a medical student, I started doing my master's of public health and tropical medicine. And 
I got a bit into some of Paul Farmer's work, which then really probably gave a name to that notion of what, what is structural violence. So when you take violence and then you're adding this sort of embedded structural violence on that. So at that point I, I got interested in in the Red Cross movement and even as a, a sort of final year medical student had the, you know, the list of prerequisites for what it would be to work for the Red Cross up on my wall and started probably at that point to work a bit more con- clearly towards that. Yeah, and maybe we can go back a bit and could you tell us about your journey to how you got to your current career and position? Yeah, it's long. (laughs) Do you want to start from which bit, from medical school or from before that? (laughs) The most important relevant parts. Yeah, it's fair call, fair call. I think... I think something that we uh, we touched in in the emails and will will come up is is you know what what is your role in in humanitarian and disaster medicine and that informs you know I think your understanding of what your role is informs how you get there. So for me, it was really important to identify that it was a long term commitment that there was not any kind of interest in simply. CV building or, or going and working in, in settings in a short-term capacity because I, I think there's a number of big ethical questions around that, that that need to be considered and probably increasingly so. So I, I really was interested long-term. The, I did the Masters of Public Health Tropical Medicine. I started, yeah, in med school and then finished that in, in my junior doctor years. I then worked a lot in, in remote areas. I had a John Flynn scholarship up in Cape York, so I went up there each year for five years, which was enormously informative, kind of a really gracious learning experience. From PGY2, I worked out in Mount Isa and then started to really, I think, understand the value of remote medicine, not only in and of itself, but as a way to really learn breadth. To, I, I had this real focus on how do you learn how to deal with whatever walks in the door or whomever walks in the door when with respect to clinical presentations. So you also learn, I think, a lot in, in rural and remote areas about how to make decisions, which is something that is, you know, harder and harder to find that space in, in big hospitals with lots more junior doctors. So so they were really key parts. So I waited until I had finished my fellowship and had a few years on the board working at consultant level before I started working in, in humanitarian settings, and that was a really purposeful decision. That sounds like a pretty cool journey. Did you grow up rurally, or was that something you became interested in later in life? No, I didn't. I, I, I grew up in Brisbane. Yeah, r- rural medicine, I think, is it's this whole sort of, you know, fascinating culture and paradigm in and of itself. I don't work in rural so much. If you divide the sector of rural medicine into regional, big regional, rural and remote. I work in regional and remote. So in regional areas, some of these bigger hospitals where we have emergency department consultant rosters that are combined between FACRAM and FACENS, they are one of my big areas and the other are the really remote solo doctor towns. So rural medicine, I think as often it's seen or one of the common lenses it's seen through is much more of those sort of stable rural towns with a small team that do a lot of the on-call and the obstetrics and the anaesthetics. I, I don't do that. I've probably been much more involved in a kind of a either based in a regional area, uh, like living in somewhere like Mackay or a fly-in, fly-out, really remote, remote medicine. What do you think some of the challenges are when you're practising as a doctor? And you're flying into these really remote areas, but you can't really follow up, I guess, with the patients because you don't live in them yourself. Yeah, I think that that's a, a really specific question, a really interesting one. It's about not centering yourself as the key of the health service, isn't it? You know? So I think these kind of really remote services that you that, that work as a FIFO model, that doesn't make it the ideal model, but it's a model. And it has created some sustainability and some longevity. Those are services that are owned and, and loved and, and managed by others. And you're the, you're the guest in that. And I, I think that's also really important within my experience of humanitarian medicine is that you, you come in with a particular skill set and it's about how you respectfully and appropriately apply that skill set, but not about how you are in charge of that service. 
A little note on follow-up in particular, I'm, I'm actually quite obsessive about this and I, I think I think we should be, that there, there really is the, the case that tests and whatever you order, you should follow up. So I, I have these little notebooks that I've kept a record, I think, of everyone I've ever seen of, of little things that need following up. And you simply have to hand over well. So when you do these kind of jobs where you change over with someone else after seven days of a 24-7 on call, you make detailed notes and you hand those over. Yeah. Do you think your experience working in remote areas and regional areas helped you when you went to start working for short-term periods overseas? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's no doubt about it. And I think if you are training as an Australian doctor and you're interested in working for MSF, there's really no excuse for not having worked in, in rural and remote Australia. It's, it's incredibly informative. It's not a, a substitute, but it's a stepping stone. And honestly, MSF really does expect it and encourage it. It's, you, you see it's, it's listed on their website as, as important experience. I think it's, there's still a real balance in, in appreciating that no, no town, no community is, is anyone's training ground. You know, you don't go to remote Australia just to get skills to go elsewhere. You go f- for the sake of that job and that position in that moment. And I guess that kind of comes back to what I was saying earlier about how it can be a really long meandering journey because you develop relationships and, and commitments in each place that you are that might alter your trajectory for some time. Yeah, and maybe we can segue to talking a bit about how you got involved in MSF and how you first made that decision to start volunteering with them. Yeah, I really was very keen to get into this work and I I had very, very itchy feet by the time I was really ready to go. My first position overseas was actually in the large 2014-2015 Ebola outbreak in West Africa, and that was with the International Federation of the Red Cross. That was at a time of immense need when there was, you know, this increasing international response to Ebola, and for some people it wasn't an option to go. So there was a real sense of, well, if not me, then who? And I went to that. And that really was, it was a very complex experience in many ways, but it was also quite solidifying. So I came back from that and I resigned my permanent contract in Australia and have worked predominantly overseas ever since. The Red Cross movement is a lot more, a really strong public health, the nursing and other other skills. MSF have those as well, but it is a bit more medical. So at that point, looking for a longer contribution in this sector, I applied for MSF. Before you go overseas, what kind of preparation, mental and physical, do you have to go through personally? Yeah, that's also an ongoing journey. I really dislike the word journey, but sometimes it's the only one that fits, you know, is because I, I think it's important that it's not just about you. And yet also it is about you to some degree because you've got to survive it, haven't you? So there is this real concept of how we survive and also of how we thrive and that's just a real constant tension that you hold and I I've done nine overseas positions now and I I talk to people who have are at different stages of that and they say things that remind me of where I was at previously and and I would make decisions differently now so I think I've really found it's a lot about having a bit of a sense of self of what's okay for you and of listening to that which again is not easy and you get it wrong all the time, but it's knowing that there's a myriad of ways to live a life and all of them are, are entirely, well, many of them are, are entirely valid. So how you go about that is is okay. So you pause when you need to pause or you go when you want to go. And that individual sort of sine wave, I guess, has been a really important thing for me. There's also, I think, shoring up some of your own personal resources. So and that can be really practical. For me, that's been some friends and family who've been willing to take that journey. And it's also been respecting those who haven't, you know, who might find the intensity of what you're doing is too much for them to be able to communicate with you. And then on, on above all that, there's a whole physical side. You know, you'll see everybody rock up to MSF jobs with yoga mats or um, various things that they can, or skipping ropes, always, there's always a skipping rope because you can end up in really high security settings where you don't have a lot of options. So thinking through how you're going to manage your physical environment is, is always a key one. Yeah. 
And is there anyone you look up to, like a role model or someone in your life that guides you? I think there are a myriad of people that you meet that you learn different things from and you probably try and incorporate different aspects of how they behave or how they react or into your own sense of self and behaviour. So, you know, from some of my friends I've learned a lot more about how you take care of yourself, about how you take care of others. From others, I've learned much stronger management skills. From others, more outcome-based. From others, more ethics. So I don't have any kind of standout role models, but I I would say people that I value and have have come to hold close of are all role models. You know, that's kind of the the marvellous nature of ordinary rich relationships. So true. There's so many things we can learn and gain from the everyday connections that we make with people. On that note, our ongoing theme for this podcast is new perspectives, such as gaining some new perspectives through people's experiences. Could you share some of the perspectives you have gained working from disaster zones and in complex situations? Yeah, this one's a a really big one to unpack. Um, And I think the humanitarian sector right now is in a, a time of great change. And to some degree, you can always say that, but but we know, I think we all know that 2020 has been a pretty spectacular year, what with coronavirus and now watching some of the great power and groundswell around the Black Lives Matter movement globally. For us as people working in the humanitarian sector, that's enormously important because our structures are inherently colonial. They come out of a colonial patriarchal system. We We use words around expatriate workers, national staff, international staff, mobile staff, local, blah, blah, that are all quite heavy and laden. And and there's a lot of discussion and, and criticism within the movement right now of how are we really ensuring all of our staff, because, of course, our staff are not predominantly international, how are we ensuring all of our staff really have a voice and really have opportunities to grow and that we're not privileging white privilege, which, which you know, to be honest, we, we are in, in our management. So the more I've worked in some of these settings, the more this has become apparent. For example, I spent a long time in South Sudan and this really remote hospital that I worked in, I, I was kind of the, I suppose, the clinical lead for medicine and there was another one or two expatriate doctors at any given time. There's also about 20 what are called clinical officers who are South Sudanese staff who would have a diploma in clinical medicine that they've studied for three years, and they are the absolute backbone of that hospital. So how how we view them and how people would sometimes say, oh, they're not doctors, and I would say, well, well they are. They're doing the job. So what is what does terminology mean? What does it mean to be a doctor? What would it be to be them and know your world and your job so well and have a constant flow of short-term international staff come and look down upon you or, you know, even in subtle ways, maybe not necessarily intentional, but not necessarily value you either. So there's real questions about medical hierarchy and how that intersects with the structures of, of the humanitarian sector. So I think I think there's a lot of unpacking that of I don't think any of us think that the humanitarian sector is meeting all of the needs that it would like to meet. And and coronavirus has really shown us that, that this big shock has come that in some ways, you know, very predictable. We we were expecting zoonoses and we were expecting another pandemic. And and have we been ready or prepared? No, no, I mean, no, no one has, have they? But there's big questions about what would maybe a more community focused response look like. So I guess new perspectives is something that I could talk about probably for hours um, because I think it is how do we how do we really name and understand our structures and our history? How do we keep what is good and how do we get rid of what is not? And how do we really how do we make sure we're not seeking to lead that discussion, but that we're seeking that those who have not been advantaged in the same way that we have are the ones that are leading that discussion. Yeah, that is so important. And something else I wanted to ask you is when you're working in a place where there is a different culture, how do you cope with balancing your own beliefs with also the culture and the beliefs of those you provide help to? Yeah, it is it is interesting. It's not as 
big an issue as perhaps you'd think, or maybe that's just my perspective. I think my own core belief system is very much secular, existential, humanitarian. You know, it's quite a secular base and, and in some ways quite broadly applicable. So I don't really find that incredibly difficult. But that said, I think you you really go with a sense of listening and of openness and in some ways you, you tend to try and stay in your lane and do the job that you're there to do, which is fairly clinical. Those kind of issues around culture emerge slowly and they're just this kind of amazing learning curve, really. There are pro- big problems in any culture and I think what you find is trying to balance when yours is the voice to speak out against them is, is really hard and I think some of that, for example, is violence against women and when is it the time. But as a person in a particular expat role, there's big questions about, you know, you wouldn't make that decision yourself. Those are things that are informed by other staff. Mostly, I think I would tend to go to most MSF positions as a, as a manager, as a teacher, as the sort of more senior doctor with some kind of education role. So you're not the primary interface and you shouldn't be, you know, there's, you're usually working with other, like somewhere like Iraq. I worked with a team of 10 Iraqi doctors and they, of course, with the primary interface with the patient and my role was to work with them to help them develop what they wanted in this health service. So I think that also meant there's a buffer and there's a group there that once we would get to know each other, you can be quite open and, and start to ask some things. But it's really is certainly about putting anything aside and going with a, you know, a huge spirit of openness. Yeah, I'm sure in your experiences, you've come across many systemic issues that your patient might be facing. Do you remember a time when it was particularly challenging and if there was anything that could be done about it? These are massive issues. I I remember many times and I, I think that structural violence has become you know, it's a topic I, I suppose I've had an interest in for a long time and that, that seems like a really wishy-washy way to say it, but it, how structures visit harm upon people is incredibly large and you see the effects of that all the time. When you're there as the doctor, I, I used to find early on I would say to people, and I said it in some pieces of writing, that when you can't stop the war, you can treat the patient in front of you and I found that to be very redemptive early on. Now I don't. I think I've gotten so deeply immersed in this space that it's not enough anymore to just treat the patient in front. And my interest now is in how do we change those systems and structures. And that's a, some ways that's a different career stage. Um, in some ways it's my journey. It's certainly what I think is the, the bigger issue right now. And, and I think that's reflected in some of the, the global movements that we're seeing. How do we stop violence being visited upon bodies? that that is deeply structural and so I guess in somewhere like South Savannah is the place I probably love the most so I don't want it to come across the wrong way but it is somewhere where I've probably seen some of this really deep harm and you see it in malnutrition and you see it in in undiagnosed tuberculosis in a child that has no access to health service and you know a family that cares deeply but has no way that they can do anything about that and you see that in governments across the world in how they use their money. We don't certainly get into those discussions about corruption and whatnot, but they are they are there and they're real. And how do we see our own role within health services that, that where governments should be should be doing something is is a really difficult point. Would you have any advice for medical students on how they can also be advocates for these kinds of changes? I think you have to be an advocate for this kind of change in every moment, in every day. You know, medical culture, it hasn't changed as much as I wish it had changed in the time that I've been exposed to it, which is probably 20 years. It's still deeply patriarchal. It's still deeply hierarchical. It's still very colonial, certainly in Australia. And I I think I'm, you know, it's, it's probably not a shock coming from someone like me that I regard Australia as fairly xenophobic and fairly misogynist in how we how we enact policy and in the structures that make up our political environment. In health, that's a huge area that is ongoing. And I think as medical students, you know, it's being aware of that. 
it's finding your voice, it's knowing when you speak rather than allow harm to be happening in front of you because it will happen every day. You know, you'll, you'll see moments where people joke a lot about people from various backgrounds or in different situations. I'm sure, you know, you see it in hospital culture and it's, it's knowing what you'll accept and what you won't. And those same core principles are what you then go on to apply in other settings as you as you move throughout your career. Yeah, that's a really important point of knowing what we accept and what we don't, and just speaking out in the everyday moments. Now, another topic we were talking about earlier is volunteerism. You've said for your journey, for you, this is something that you are really passionate about, and it was never just a CV building experience. So I wanted to ask, how do we know when we have the right motivation or the right reason to do something? Such a good question, isn't it? How do you know? And yeah, I, I don't think any of our motivation is pure, is it? You know, we we all gain something from what we do, and gain is not inherently wrong. It just needs to be understood. So I'm a big believer, for example, in in really supporting some of these clinical officer staff who are looking at, at creating their own clinics and their own movements. Now they also need to feed their families, they need to send their kids to school, they need to earn money. I think those things are all entirely valid. And there's a, a degree of that also with international staff that you still need to, there's some basic gain that is considered acceptable. The line in the sand there is really difficult. There's an Australian journalist, Anthony Lowenstein, who I recently was in touch with, and he has a book on disaster capitalism. So that really starts to look at when gain is too much. And there is, of course, a whole industry around disaster and around how money is made out of that. And at the time, we were talking about examples of private medical companies operating in, in Australia and overseas, and he was analysing the role of, of Aspen Medical, which, which many of you may have heard of. So that's a pretty contentious space, but I think if you are a medical student group that's interested in getting into this space, it's, it's really eyes wide open territory, hey? So that's, that's a little bit, I guess, on your, your point of how do you know it also buys into a little bit of this discussion recently that we see a lot in social media on on fragility. So I think you have to be enormously open to knowing that people are going to feed back to you and that's okay. And how are you going to absorb that? What are you going to learn how to take on board and how not to, how do you have a robust group of people around you to reflect with? You need humility, you know, and I think Certainly, probably in my experience, one of the things that gives you humility more than anything else is is a long exposure to complexity. So that probably winds us back to volunteerism. I think, and I, I always find this a little bit hard to know how to say to medical students because I don't want to discourage anyone from from being involved in this incredibly important area of meeting extreme need. However, I think I do want to say if you're going to do it, you have to be prepared to do it for a long period of time and you have to be prepared to do it with real heart and with real knowledge and you have to have something to give. You also have to, I think, simply be willing to know that you're not the great beneficiary that's giving. So there's there's some sort of subtlety around that. I think there can be a real perception that you can do two years of medicine at the Alfred and then go and spend your, you know, your couple of months overseas and that that's an amazing thing for your CV. And I cannot dislike that enough. <laughs> you know, it's it's not okay. It's not the way. It's not how we build change globally. When I when we talk about volunteerism specifically, I guess that's a term that's used for, you know, people going for short-term electives and spending a lot of money to do that that maybe could be better used elsewhere and going and being in projects where they're not adding value and getting some great Instagram shots from it. Now, everything exists on a continuum and I certainly know people that have done medical student electives overseas that it's changed their life. And so that's the reason I'm hesitant to ever be too black and white and ever say, no, no, no. But I hear of, you know, med camps and terminology of, of people that, that are going for very short periods of time at, at high expense and taking a few blood pressures in some, you know, rural village. And that's, you know, regarded as such a, a big contribution. And I want to say we need to be better than that. We need to see ourselves as, you know, as compatriots with those that we're working with. And we need to be ensuring that our investment is about the community and not 
about our ego or about our CV or about how that's going, what social capital we gain in Australia from that. Yeah. That's a big answer. I, <laughs> I hope I that. I love it. Yeah. answers. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I, I've got a little piece on my website, a little blog piece called They Send Us a Junior Doctor. And this is, a, uh, I really fluctuate in this space because I wrote that at a time when I'd seen a real benefit to having a junior doctor in, in this particular project we were in. And so there is a bit of, I guess, grace in that piece. I probably would even backpedal back to my original positioning from that right now and say, mm, I'm, I'm less sure. But, but the, you know, the, the reality is that this is life in, in all its richness and, and it, it'll never be perfect, but I think it has to be enormously self-reflective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You've been to many different places, so you've been placed in a lot of different situations. On average, how long do you normally stay in one place at a time? really varies. So when you start with MSF, they will expect you to commit to a year and you would often do, you would still, however, often do a six-month placement as your first position. Um, The year does include the fact that it can be difficult to find the right position for somebody doing their first job. As you get more experienced, um, it goes in two ways. One is that there is, there are jobs that are longer positions where you can add more value and you would, everyone would probably benefit from you taking that as a longer job rather than having a high turnover of international staff. And the other side is there are short term jobs that are about starting up or doing a little bit of surveillance of understanding the needs in an area or teaching, which are often also kind of come in with a set program. So six months is probably an average. I've done one that was a nine-month position, a few that were six. Um, I've done some as short as one month, but they would not be the norm. And who chooses where you go? Is it your choice or is it MSF chooses wherever there's a need that fits your position? Yeah, it's mostly the latter, but with the caveat that it's not the army and you're not sent, you know, you can say no. Um, You... You have less say early on. I think there's an expectation of openness and uh, MSF will often ask you what you're interested in, what you want to do, uh, and then they will match you to where the need is. And it can be startlingly different to what you expect. Mine certainly was. I think I imagined somewhere like South Sudan early on and my first job with MSF was actually running a non-communicable disease program in the north of Lebanon with Syrian refugees. So for someone who'd really been a remote emergency doctor in Australia, that was quite a leap. Um, but again, you, you just, you learn fast and you read a lot and, and you make it work. So, so I think you do have to be quite open. Uh, but at this stage now, I probably, um, have a little bit more say or there's a bit more conversation that goes into this is where I would like to be working or what I, where I think I can add value. But it, it's still it's still very variable. Yeah, I think the important thing is that we so MSF works in in conflict in um, areas of you know what used to be called natural disaster, but that's a term we really try and avoid more and more, knowing that of course disasters are not natural; they are socio-political events. But so, you know, so I would call them weather-related events, um, and in epidemic and in other particular areas of unmet need, which which encompasses a lot of our TBHIV work. I work mostly in conflict. And that's an area that not everybody feels comfortable doing. It is certainly the case that if you are proposed a job where you don't feel comfortable, that it's very reasonable to say no. Yeah. Have you ever returned to the same place? Uh, yes, never in exactly the same capacity. But I, after the first position I did in the north of Lebanon with Syrian refugees, I was asked to go down to Beirut afterwards to start a similar program in the really old, older Palestinian refugee camp. I was just quite chuffed to do that. So going back to Lebanon was amazing. South Sudan I've worked in twice, um, once with MSF, which was a long one, and then I went back with uh, the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, and I would very happily go back again. Mm. Two jobs in in Iraq were back-to-back, so, yeah, that doesn't count. (laughs) And something else that I think is important in all locations, even big hospitals here in Australia but also overseas, is working as a whole healthcare team, not just doctors having their role, nurses having their role, but I guess that's particularly important when you're working overseas and you're working with people from that culture and doctors 
uh, who have been living there their whole lives. How do you find a balance or what advice could you give to medical students to learn about how to work together as a team with other healthcare professionals? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think deep respect, you know, so somehow there's really your own structural way of learning to try and leave your ego at the door. And it's harder when you're tired and it's harder when you're new, but you do have to concretely check yourself. Um, and then there's, I think you need to embed structural ways of, of keeping things very open. So particularly when you do come in in a management role. And I think for me, the best example of this was Iraq, where I came to this team that had had nine managers in nine months and they were just exhausted by this. They kind of were just sort of looking at me, rolling their eyes saying, just tell us what you want. We said, no, 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 no. Let's, what do, this is your, this is your program. This is, you're the ones that are still here. So what, what do you want? And there was this kind of real, silence and this this conversation went over a period of time and and it, it basically went over a period of meals so this is a culture that is really big on eating together and that became I think how that team moved forward through that so and I really learned a lot from that because the the whole facility would just stop at lunchtime and one or, or two people would be left in the main area the lunchroom is very close and we would have ordered food and the local guys will have arranged it because they know the best food and the cleaners are there and the doctors are there and the nurses are there and everyone's just together and, and that real camaraderie is something I've never seen in an Australian hospital. It was really a, a complete breaking down of hierarchy so you're learning from that and at the same time you're trying to break down the barriers that your own institution and for me in that time it was it was some of the history of MSF's involvement um, had imposed so in the, and that was really turning that conversation around on how that team could lead where that project was going so I think you have to be you have to be aware of it you have to listen you have to sit with people a long time you know my approach in a new project is really to just take time to sit in a lot of consults where I don't speak the language but you're you're watching how people interact and to get to know the players and that that trust takes time to build up and then you find ways to have those conversations and you open up i think you have to be really open to new ideas so if there's a there's always something that needs implementing so there's always some new section of your program so who's the best person for that it might be a nurse led it might be a social worker led it, it could be you know there's many other sort of structures within those teams so yes absolutely i think it's valuable to unpack this idea of who delivers health and medicine is not rocket science. It's, healthcare is not either. This is, this is community-led team business that we all have a role in. Yeah. Something I've been wondering is how do you deal with language barriers to other colleagues or even patients? So we do employ translators wherever needed and wherever possible. It is the thing, particularly when I started in MSF, I really missed that natural connection I have with English-speaking patients because that's something that you cannot replicate without this level of language. However, I guess what I've realised over time is that it comes back to that question of me not being the, the patient interface so much. You know, I'm there to support other clinicians and to teach them. I, my direct patient role has tended to be in times of, of quite serious resuscitation, so very, very sick patients. And then, again, you're, you're working with such a team that, that your language then is, is not a concern. Often the members of the team who are more educated, so the clinical officers or the doctors in Iraq, they all speak English. So they are communicating for you and they're translating for you. It has limitations, but, you know, you, you work with that yeah okay so i want to ask you what is something you would like to be able to learn more about right now <laughs> ah so much stuff so i'm actually looking at starting a phd next year which is looking at this kind of nexus of of migration climate emergency and conflict and i'm trying to understand i guess a lot more of the political economy of health some of the much more macro thinking around the health systems that we have that exist and the and the harm and the good that, that, that exists within those. So that's my particular focus. To come back to what you mentioned about those that, you know, people you look up to or, or you, you learn from, 
I've gotten a bit involved in Twitter in the last year, which has been a new experience for me. But what I have found about it is you can be quite pointed in, in what you're trying to learn. And I have been really interested in trying to hear from community leaders, particularly women and particularly women of colour in, in communities that I know well. So um, there's a, a hashtag SSOT, which is South Sudan on Twitter, and through that I've gotten to hear a lot more of the perspective of South Sudanese women. And that's been a really important learning curve for me, particularly while in Australia right now. There's also a, a woman on, on Twitter called Marie Rose uh, Romain, who's a, a community leader in Haiti, who's very a staunch kind of leader about the decolonization of aid structures. And so she's someone I, I try and listen to a lot. So that's that's probably really the direction I'm moving in in trying to learn and understand how we can how we can better deliver help. Yeah, and it's so useful how far technology and the internet has come that we can learn all of these things and gain perspectives from people in completely different countries and different settings all through our computers. Yeah, very cool. What is something that you perhaps failed at and that you learned something from? Yeah, I fail all the time. So <laughs> I think one of the attributes I have that has become most useful in this career is endurance. Medicine is an endurance game, if ever there was one. It took me time to get into this career. So I actually studied originally theology for a couple of years. Then I did a degree in mathematics, logic, and philosophy. And then I did the GAMSAT exam, got into medicine. And because I came from a highly analytical background, I, I did very, very well in, in GAMSAT. I got quite a, a, a very high score. And then I... Was, had a place in medicine, but I was one of the very few with a non-science background. I think I was one of three, maybe, in my year. And so I failed first year medical school. So how you can kind of go from being this entrant to like, you know, completely failing was really interesting. And for me, it was very reflective of, of how I think and of what that sort of need is in, turn of, in terms of science knowledge. But I would say one of the hardest things I've done, or certainly at that point in time, one of the hardest things I've done was turning up to do first year medical school again and just keeping going and getting through and again it's a lot of putting ego behind you and and seeing the bigger picture so that was a really big thing for me then there've been there've been so many times i mean doing remote medicine has there's a lot of fatigue challenges there's a lot of learning to put one foot in front of the other when you are exhausted and there's real complexities around that behind what we accept and what we don't accept and some of that space has improved but i would say that the time I've spent in remote Australia doing enormously long hours and difficult jobs has probably been one of the greatest teachers of my life, for better or for worse. Yeah. Also, what I was wondering is being in all these situations, especially in emergency medicine, you see some very difficult cases and it can be disheartening at times. How do you, when you get back to Australia, what goes through your mind? How do you cope with going back into normal Australian lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it is really hard. I think, again, it, it comes back to that earlier point about appreciating that you, you know, you are on a, a kind of a rolling journey and you have to give yourself a lot of space. So I, I think I've tried to do that over time, to accept that there are times when you're okay and there are times when you're not okay. And both of those are broadly okay, <laughs> for want of a better word. The you do come back in a really different headspace. Um, one of my friends talks about the thousand yard stare and I, I certainly get that. I really come back quite dissociated. I haven't really seen Australia as a, a home for a long time. I, I come back to work because I need to work to earn money, which I do in Australia. And I come back to keep my clinical skills up, but I don't, I don't own a home. I don't live a life where I earn a lot of money. So I, it, it would be outside my scope to have that kind of set up in Australia. So I, I stay with my sister and her family. So I'm embedded in some ways, but not in others. And then there, there are times when I've been doing a lot of jobs, particularly shorter term jobs, and that turnover gets quite high and you are quite mentally, I think, exhausted by that. Then there are times when, yeah, you come back and, you know, you're frustrated, but it takes some time. There are also different challenges. So I, I really love what I do and and I, I probably love it more and more every day and that's meant, meant it's harder to come back and work in Australia. 
it's a different system. It's a much more risk-adverse system. It's a very medico-legal system. I feel like I have less independence and creativity as a doctor in Australia than I, I do as a doctor in, in more complex settings. So that's become a really interesting thing to draddle over time because I also know that some of the value I bring to various settings is the high level of clinical care that we deliver in Australia and that I have the privilege of of coming back and relearning and, and, and working with colleagues and keeping up that level of skills. So I've tried to straddle that divide for about six years now. Yeah, I have moments, hey, <laughs> some of them very positive and some of them very meltdowny. Yeah, that's a very different lifestyle, but also a very rewarding and valuable one. Do you find in other people who also volunteer overseas that they have a similar mentality or mindset that you'll share? Yeah, I think yes and no. So not not necessarily the majority, but you definitely find your people, don't you? <laughs> you know, and that's the wonderful thing about a career like this is that it brings you into contact with different people and there are some that you resonate with and you resonate strongly. So some of my closest friends are people I've met in various positions related to MSF or the Red Cross and that I keep in touch with and they have become closer and more important people in my life over time and they are yeah, they are my tribe, I guess, in a lot of ways, and that's irreplaceable. Mm. Yeah, I really love the way you put that. It's so lovely, and it's really nice to just be able to find your tribe. Was there ever a moment in your life when you were doing something and you just wanted to quit, and how did that resolve? Not really, I think. I th Probably back to that example of, of the, the slog of getting through medical school was a big one. For me, I, I, things improved as they went along, you know, so I was much happier once we got into the clinical years, then I was even happier once we got into actually working. And then, you know, then, then you kind of fall into this registrar sort of time where it's quite a slog again, and you just kind of want that to be over and to get on with things. And, but that time did pass. So no, I don't think I've ever had a desire of wanting to quit in terms of the, the broader thing of what I do. Of, of different specific jobs, absolutely. You know, I think that when it comes to working in really quite edgy jobs, whether that's remote jobs in Australia, whether that's jobs in high security settings overseas, there are times when the right thing is to do to quit, right? When, you know, you might not feel safe or there might be things going on that mean you're not the best person to deliver care in that time or you're too tired or something else. So I would say there's a positive in that. But in terms of the overall trajectory, no, I'm pretty, um, I think I'm pretty bloody minded about it, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. What is the last act of kindness that you did for yourself or for someone else? Oh, wow. Kindness in, in the way that we often use the word of, of smaller things. Uh, a lot of my friends and I send each other parcels. So I'm staying at the moment. I, I live in Tasmania, but I in Queensland because of the state boundary challenges with coronavirus. So some of my friends send things. I just got back from, from Rockhampton where I was doing some work on the weekend and there were some parcels and, and they were from a friend of mine who had sent a bath shelf and a candle and some salts for the bath and all this. So that was really cool. Someone else sent me some gin. That's actually often something I would also send other people. So yeah, we have a whole real sort of industry of things sent through the mail. That's such a lovely idea and it's a good way of keeping in touch with people as well. Yeah, yeah. It's also something that happens in MSF. You you get parcels from home. I think in this nine months that I first spent in South Sudan, I got about 20 different parcels that people had sent to Geneva that then came there to, to this remote place. And my, my very favourite um, example, I've told a few people, but I, I just love it, is um, there was a, a Palestinian friend in, in Lebanon who she grew up as a refugee and she became a statistician and I knew her in a work capacity. And when I, w I went from Lebanon to South Sudan and I was losing a lot of weight, which was, was expected probably in that context, but I was there a long time and, and she saw a photo. And so she packaged up all these dates and sent them with someone from Tripoli to Beirut to Geneva to Juba to this remote town of Agok. And I was just chuffed to get this kind of package of food from a refu Palestinian refugee in, in South Sudan. <laughs> yeah. And there are such nice global connections of people that you can make when working yeah. in these fields. Yeah. But also it's something that takes up a lot of time. 
How do you balance your work but also your interests outside of medicines and hobbies? Yeah, I think if you're looking for an authority on balance, I, I'm not the person to look to. <laughs> um, I, I'm probably quite start-stop. I'm pretty passionate. I'm pretty embedded. And this has become, this work has become over time a, a big part of my sense of self and it's become part of my identity. Your identity is a whole other interesting topic and, and particularly when you do work amongst so many different cultures, what who you are becomes informed by so many different things. And and I guess I I have never really sought to have work and life separate. It's not that I live for my job, it's that it, it's a part of who I am and it's a part of, of, of what makes me me. So I've probably looked for spaces within that and that might mean when you need time to sleep or you need time to, to switch off completely and some of that has been in really random spots like on a beach in Mexico where a friend of mine lives. But, yeah, it's it's within the rhythms of daily life rather than being structured. Yeah. I think that's a really cool point that you bring up, especially in careers that take up this more time. They can kind of become their own lifestyle, but it's also just important to remember what you like and what makes you as your own person and being able to find maybe not setting aside a whole day for it, but just to find ways to enjoy that in the little moments. Yeah, I think it's finding what feeds you and it's finding what nourishes you. And, and that might be a week or two at a time or it might be an hour, like you say. And, and it, it is, it's listening to, to yourself and, and what works for you. So I think there has to be a huge amount of kindness towards yourself. And I, I've probably been a slow learner at that, but I think I find that kind of concept of, of kindness towards yourself as probably a more important one than, than a formal sense of balance. Yeah. Well, you've mentioned that you're a kind of person who likes to just jump on things and get things done and move between things. But what advice would you give yourself at the start of your career, bearing in mind what you've learned and how far you've come? I think when I look back, sometimes I'm just maybe frustrated that some things took me so long, you know. But honestly, even with that, I don't think I would change anything. Yeah, some, some things I wish I'd done earlier. Sometimes I wish I'd been braver. Sometimes I wish I'd said more. Mo most people are doing the best that they can on any given day. And I think if you are reasonably mindful about that and reasonably self-aware, then that's in some ways the best you can do at any point in any career. So that, that maybe sounds a little bit wishy-washy, but I think... I think the best advice is to be aware that, that medicine as a whole is quite a difficult career. So to have friends and contacts or counsellors or advisors or people from all different walks of life that can give you ideas or information and, and also to read broadly, you know, where there are books that people with perspectives from all over that have helped me at all kinds of moments. There are quotations and, and comments and, and things and they come from all corners, very few of them medical to be fair. So um, I think just keeping that, that real breadth in your life. Could you tell us something that you're reading at the moment and if you'd recommend it? So I'm a, a shameless purchaser of books and I never read them all cover to cover or I never keep up with how many that I order. <laughs> and I, um, I often feel quite bad about this, but I dip in and out of a lot and learn a lot from them. So I was really interested in this question because one that I'm ardently waiting for that I've ordered right now is comes from a recommendation of, of a friend of mine who's a, a sort of an ethicist anthropologist doctor in the UK and it's called Body and Soul the Black Panther Party and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination so this is one that I'm really interested in in terms of looking at where what we're seeing in this in the Black Lives Matter movement and how we understand how that um what our complicity is, I think, as, as medical practitioners. But it also made me think that what I've been looking for in terms of reading is, is grassroots voices more broadly. And one that I read recently that I did really learn a lot from was, was Sally Rugg's book, uh, How Powerful We Are, which is, she was describing her role and the, some of the actions of others in the marriage equality campaign in Australia. This book I found really interesting because my background over the last number of years has been really very clinical and trying to take a different viewpoint as to what grassroots movements are and what are some, I guess, tips about really practical 
activism, that was really helpful. And then I think we're all aware and we all have, anyone that I talk to have moments these days where things are really difficult and we're absorbing a lot of this complex energy around us with the coronavirus pandemic and with the increasing activism worldwide and and sitting with the discomfort of that is is an important part of of acknowledging structural harm but it's also the case that we need to find our own ways through it and and two that I've pulled off the shelf that I'd bought before and I'm starting to read is one is a, a Griffith review publication I think it was number 64 and it's called the new Dis- disruptors and it's a series of essays about different ways of disrupting systems and the other one is called radical hope which is a series of essays and perspectives of people from all over the world and and there's certainly I think when we're facing enormous difficulty we all find different ways to find hope within it so they're my kind of little selection right now of trying to I guess challenge and still survive and thrive yeah yeah they're really lovely titles and I'm definitely also one of those people who has a very very long book list that (laughs) trying to get around to reading all of it but books are just really lovely ways to learn from someone else even if you haven't actually met them yeah it's so true isn't it you learn so much with everything Mm. (laughs) what is the best advice that you've received from someone The best advice I received from someone was when I was in South Sudan and things were very difficult and a friend of mine who's a sociologist in Tasmania who I'd known since since I was about 20, 20, she was reflecting on the complexity of the experiences that I I was telling her in, in stories basically via email and she said to me that what struck her about it was something she'd learned from another source and it was that if you don't let pain transform you, you will transmit it. And I think when you do a job like mine, you're exposed to a lot of pain. And there's a really big question about how much human suffering you can witness and what is okay for you. And if you make a decision to continue to re-enter that space, then how are you going to manage that? And although it sounds like an enormously nebulous concept, I've found this really useful as to say if you don't yes if you don't let it transform you you will transmit it and and it has really meant years of of deep reflection and and times of falling apart and of knowing again that that's okay but how are we going to put those pieces together in which order and and that it's a little bit like the water on the rocks in that it's a it's a constant process and the moments when you're good at it or bad at it sometimes catch you yeah from seeing all this pain, was there ever a time when you felt really, I guess, burnt out and what do you do in those situations? Yeah, I think there are times when you do and it's probably how we use terminology and burnout's one of those ones that people use differently. I think most people would leave a lot of the jobs that I've done uh, ready for a break and some people would describe that as being burnt out. The Uh, Burnout can also probably be better used as a a longer-term response. My interest in staying engaged is high, but I do shift with the the waves and the sands what is the right way to be engaged at any point in time. And there are some times when you have the energy to go to Syria or to go to Iraq, to go to South Sudan, and there are some times when you don't. So it is, again, yeah, knowing that. But there's, yeah, absolutely been times when I've been quite shattered and finding regenerative spaces has been really important for me some of that's been at my friend's place in mexico some of it's been in all other kind of random spots mostly it's about kind of permission and time and and money is actually honestly one of the hardest things so when people have strong financial pressures you don't have the ability to take time off after a really difficult job and that can be really hard so it can be hard to have a a financial need to leave a job with MSF and then come back and go straight into a clinical medicine job in Australia. Before we continue, just a short announcement from 3MT. Attention all. Happy Little Med students. students. As bright as bright can be, we all enjoy our research and we do it all for free. So why not join our competition to win our free prize? Because it only takes three minutes to share your research in three minutes. So you can win our 3MT. The three-minute thesis competition is now open. Entries close 10pm this Sunday, the 19th of July. So act quickly and head on over to our AMSA National Convention Facebook page for all the details and to see how you can get involved. Then, 
Be sure to join us next Thursday, the 23rd of July at 7.30pm for our live online final where you can join our four expert judges to crown our three MT champions. And back to the podcast. So Amy, you've had experiences with various infectious diseases for your work overseas. You've mentioned earlier about the Ebola outbreak and having patients with HIV and tuberculosis. And now we've found ourselves in this unexpected pandemic due to COVID-19 that's really been impacting people globally. How has it impacted you? So I, um, I was talking at a conference overseas and then on my way home and I got stuck because I was, I was in Peru. And <laughs> so I got stuck in the very quick lockdown that happened there. A couple of cases started to emerge in South America. So I then became a part of a sort of a group of Australians that were trying to get out of Peru. That involved um, some support from the media, which we were really grateful for, and, and getting a little bit of momentum. Then I came back and I was in the early cohort of those that were locked up in hotels in Sydney. So that I found to be a really uh, difficult and challenging time. Because Queensland's one of the easiest places for me to work, I came here uh, with some contracts, but it has meant that I'd already done four weeks of lockdown. And if I wanted to see my family, I would have had to do another two weeks of lockdown in Tasmania. And I, to do six was really getting too much. So it means I haven't seen my family since February which has been really difficult it wasn't it wasn't what was expected it, you know it, it's happened from time to time with long msf jobs but it wasn't planned or expected at this time so on a personal level that's probably been the biggest effect for me yeah yeah it was definitely a very unexpected situation to arise do you remember when you first heard about the covid outbreak and did you ever think that it was going to grow so rapidly into the global situation it is I think that projection is so hard and it's really, even now, I don't think we're doing a great job at projecting the impact of, of COVID, are we? We we have some really great modelling around and we have epidemiologists and infectious disease people who are getting an increasing understanding of the of the disease. But, but how that disease interacts with governments and health systems is a whole other, a whole other matter that I think we still understand quite poorly. To say you had a good idea beforehand, I think is a really, um, it's really hard. I never knew. And I, I was aware of holding conflicting ideas in tension. So I certainly was a part of those early on that were saying, oh, is this just a bad flu? Is it not? We weren't sure. There was that sense that a pandemic, I think, was always expected and was this going to be it? I don't, I don't think anyone expected us to be affected to the degree that we have been. But that's also not been just the disease that's been the way governments have chosen to respond. And again, I think you're damned if you do and damned if you don't in, in criticising those responses, you know. So Australia's been very successful in managing that and then there, there comes criticism of have they gone too far and at what cost. And that's an unanswerable question. That's the paradox of the success of public health. I think um, we did all compare it to Ebola and I think there are some relevant comparisons, but epidemiologically Ebola is much easier to understand in that it's, it doesn't transmit without symptoms. So until you've got a fever, you are not going to give anybody else Ebola. So that, that simple fact alone made it easier for us to work with it. And coronavirus has just confused everyone. And it, it's also confused everyone, not just in terms of its infectivity or who gets it, but then of the impact that it has on that person. And that's an area that I feel really unsure about. Yeah. Definitely, and we've seen a lot of very different and varying responses to the situation from different governments and different countries, and also just on an individual level. Now, as we're getting towards the end of the episode, I wanted to just end on a note by asking you, do you have a simple phrase or a quote that has really resonated and stuck with you? So I love this question, and I have four for you guys. <laughs> Fantastic. Because they are, I think, at different times of your career, different things resonate. So I remember as a medical student, there was one that I had stuck on my wall. And this is a, this comes from Rumi, who's, you know, attributed as a Persian poet, Islamic scholar and theologian. And that one says, let yourself be silently drawn by the strange pull of what you really love. It will not lead you astray. And I think in my early career, time that was I found that 
quite helpful because I was always going down a path that was quite different to my colleagues. So having that reminder that that was okay was really important. There's one from Paul Farmer that has I've, I've used probably in every book I've ever done, and I think it can't be used enough, and that is to say if access to healthcare is considered a human right, then who is human enough to have that right? And that's something that I think um, is really important to reflect on at all stages of your medical career. When I was in South Sudan, um, we, you know, we had a lot of times where, you know, sleep was hard to come by and resuscitations were frequent and serious and, and, and people were dying. And there's one by a, a Lebanese French writer called Armin Malouf, who he's got much spectacular writing, including the, the, about the identity stuff I was referring to earlier in his book on identity. But he's got one where he says, your tears roll tonight, but tomorrow you'll start the battle again. What defeats us is always just our own sorrow. And I think that one's important because it's a little bit of what you said earlier about how do you manage the ups and downs and the impact on yourself. And I think that's been really helpful for me in setting some of what you do a, a little bit aside from your sense of self and being able to say, okay, this event happened and that's how it is. And what, you know, how do you not, how do you roll through pain and not be defeated by pain? And then finally is a little one that's kind of always floats in the back of my mind from Joan Didion, which says you have to pick the places that you don't walk away from. And I think that I've never been 100% sure which those places are, and that's a little bit of a constant reflection. There you go. Yeah, They're really beautiful quotes. And what I really love about it is also just hearing your perspective and what they mean to you, and I think that's really beautiful to hear. I want to thank you so much for your time. I know you have, you're probably very busy, but thank you so much for taking time out of your day and having a chat to us. I think we've heard some really cool perspectives on both working overseas, working remotely as well, and just healthcare systems. And it's been really enlightening. So thank you so much. Pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to, to listen to such a, a different view, I guess. Yeah. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the AMSA Ampule Podcast M2.0 series. Our code word for this week is Queen Thick Market, which if you go to our website www.m2020.com.au and insert the code word in our portal, you go into the running for some great prizes and giveaways. And over the course of our series, we'll be able to collect an image per week for our M20 sticker book. The M2.0 series is a subset of Ampule, the Australian Medical Students Association's ongoing podcast series to highlight speakers who would have presented at our 2020 Amsterdam National Convention. If you would like to learn more about our podcast, you can visit our website at www.m2020.com.au or our parent website www.amsa.org.au or if you prefer, we are on social media as AMSA National Convention on Facebook and on Instagram. For more information of the topics covered in this podcast, you can reach out to AMSA Special Interest Groups on Facebook, Instagram, and the AMSA website. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not definitively represent those of AMSA or the subsidiaries. If you would like to learn more about our public policies, please visit our website at www.amsa.org.au and select Advocacy followed by Official Policy. This episode of Ampule was hosted and edited by Angela Frenzy with guests Amy Nielsen and music by James Palmier.